case. Hope Not Hate are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sick virtue signaling, fake news crate. Hello and welcome back to the Hope Not Hate podcast. It's been uh, some time since I've been on, so it's nice to be back. And for a change, uh, I'm back with some good news. We're here to talk about something positive. Uh, I'm sure many of the listeners you'll know or noticed this week that the verdicts come in for the huge, long-running neo-Nazi party Golden Dawn trial in Greece. Um, it's over. Uh, it ended up being successful. 68 defendants. This was the biggest trial of fascists since Nuremberg. Everyone was kind of convicted. Other members or supporters were found guilty of murder, attempted murder, assault illegal possession of weapons. Uh, this was a huge trial and a huge success. Um, and it's an interesting one because, of course, Golden Dawn, in many ways, is the closest we've come yet seeing, uh, you know, traditional style fascism in its most extreme form regain a bit of a foothold in European politics, uh, certainly this century. So this is exciting news. Uh, it's something important that we need to talk about. And, and equally exciting, uh, we're joined today to talk about it by Paul Mason, I'm sure you know Paul, he's a journalist, formerly economics editor at Channel 4, he's a commentator, he's a playwright, and of course he's the author of numerous books including Why It's Kicked Off Everywhere, The New Global Revolutions, and Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future. Um, hello Paul, thanks for joining us. Uh, great to be here, and as you say, it is good news. Yeah, I know, it's, um, it's, it's very rare we get to talk about good news in the last couple of years on this podcast, every time we... Uh, kind of do it it's to say here's another threat here's something more dangerous or more different so it's very rare there's a kind of tangible success so I'm quite excited to have a chat. Um, before we get directly into Golden Dawn and, and talk a little bit obviously about the trial at some length um, you yourself have spent a lot of time in Greece I'm sure lots of us remember kind of some of those packages of you in front of the Acropolis <laughs> uh, on <laughs> Channel 4 um, a few years back so I thought it'd be interesting maybe to start there actually Paul Mason is in Athens. Paul. Here at Athens Police HQ, we've just seen a leading Golden Dawn MP, Christos Papas, led away in handcuffs. He's one of six MPs, 22 party activists, and the charge is organised crime. We're and tell us a little bit about your time in Greece. You were there in a pretty tumultuous period for the country, which I think is important to this story. Um, yeah. So just tell us a little bit what you were doing out there and what was happening at the time. Yeah. Well, I have a family connection to Greece. Uh, long time ago my sister dated a greek guy and we who was on the left an academic and we we went every year to to greece for our holiday and it, i got to know a lot about the history and the culture of greece and cyprus and the anti-fascist struggle the anti-fascist war indeed that had uh, taken place there and what i realized when the 2008 crisis began and, the, and remember, Greece was very quickly into a story of bankruptcy, financial black holes, corruption and austerity. Indeed, um, you know, it was the first ever downgrade by S&P during that crisis when we, were, when we were discussing the downgrades of countries was of Greece during the left wing week of riots that took place in 2007. I thought as soon as the crisis started, I knew there would be political radicalization in Greece because it was one of those moments, just like say 1929 in the Weimar Republic, where everybody realized the present was unsustainable. The whole Greek uh, post-dictatorship political reality had been held together by fictitious money. You know, uh, just inflation, property inflation, rampant corruption, 
once the the music stops and the roundabout stops, you know, you just realize there's going to be political radicalization. And so I made it my business to get in there as a BBC journalist at the time. And of course, it was it did suffer the deepest and sharpest recession of that period, a minus 25 GDP figure within three years. And anybody, you know, I mean, this is a, a podcast for people who, who study the far right. Anybody who has studied history in the far right will know that 50% youth unemployment, 25% adult unemployment, suicide rate through the roof, that political radicalization to the left and right was going to happen. Somebody like Dr. Generos. His hospital had its funding cut over the past six years from 19 million to 7 million. And his views on the impact of this austerity package are pretty striking. Uh, what is happening here is a crime against humanity. And somebody from Europe has to pay for that because many people are dead already, suicides in Greece, because of this crisis. The crisis is making people sick. It's interesting because it? the historiography often screams when people make parallels to the 20s and 30s, but this is one of those cases where it, it was completely justified in many ways. And mm. I think like, coming at it from the economic uh, issue, as you say, you had you know, the rise of similar kind of left-wing parties at the time, and you had this polarization of politics. And I think it's a real challenge to some of the kind of academic consensus at the moment that says it's not about economics at all. You know, the rise mm. of the far right isn't economic, it's cultural, it's about immigration, etc. And of course, it's, it's not one or the other. But do you think that that kind of you, we can draw a direct, direct kind of link between the economic crisis and the kind of rising golden dawn votes? You know, absolutely. I mean, um, what what changed wasn't you know. There's, there's always been anti-Semitism in Greece. Uh, there's always been anti-migrant sentiment in Greece. Uh, there's always been Hellenic nationalism, ethno-nationalism. Um, but I, I, let's talk in, in a bit about the, the, the academic theory, but which I think is an, it, it is a, it, it's an arbitrary separation. When you're a journalist down there in a market in Athens and, and Golden Dawn have just been there and turned every migrant-owned stall over, you're not asking, is this cultural, is this economic? You know, you, you're, it is quite, you know, the targets are clearly cultural, but the, the trigger was, and remember, what, what academia abstracts from is something that, that in the 30s people were very obsessed with, which is social character and mass psychology. You know, there's, there's departments of political science and they, they study the demographics of far-right movements. And then there's economic, you know, you can, there are us, the economists. But really the middle bit is what's going on in people's heads. And, um, what we started to notice was not just radicalization and populism, but something that Greek journalists called anomie. So, you know, anarchy is the, you know, the, the kind of, you know, kind of anarchy, but anomie is just the absence. It's like a vacuum. It's an absence of government. Um, um, this anomic state that several Greek commentators pointed to in 2012, 2013, was what I think allowed Golden Dawn to make its breakthrough. Of course, it, the, the other break, you know, all politics is, is action and reaction, because what was happening was that just as the right were radicalizing, so there was a big xenophobic nationalist party called Laos, um, and then 
and then it splintered and it's so a kind of UKIP and it splintered and a lot of its supporters went straight to Golden Dawn. At the same time, the left was de-radicalizing. So you have to realize that Alexis Tsipras came to power by, who's the leader of Syriza, eventually by what? Loads of, I'm, I've sat in the presidential palace with him and looked around me and, and the advisors around him were left social democrats. All the people he recruited from the failed social democratic party, PASOK, the, the Green Party more or less merged with Syriza, uh, organized feminism merged with Syriza. And what did Tsipras do in 2014? He, he said, look, we've had this program, anti-NATO, you know, sort of, you know, critical of Israel over Palestine. That's all gone. You know, we are going to take power, do radical things, but we're going to be a essentially a mainstream left social democratic party. So the Golden Dawn's opportunity lay in the depth of the crisis, the, the, the scale of this anomic disruption. So, that, you know, you'd be driving along a motorway and, and, and you'd suddenly literally out of nowhere, there's a toll booth and about 60 people standing at the toll booth with banners saying we're not paying. And almost like, you know, the, the, the uniformed staff almost kind of taken hostage and all the, all the barriers manually ripped apart. So they said, like, there's no more road tolls. When, when that happens every day, I do think that the parallel with Weimar um, is, is valid. So, so there's everyday chaos. There's a lot of low-level violence. And, and then you've got the problem of there's now suddenly for the ruling class, there is the threat of a left government. And, and you know, you're a historian, so am I. Let's remember, you know, the Nazis didn't just gain support because everybody had read the protocols of the elders of Zion and were all fought into folk music and leather trousers. You know, they gained support because a section of the elite looked at the left and said, we, we fear them more. And so there was, you know, I think there was a layer cake of collusion between Golden Dawn, the populist parties, the political establishment, and most importantly, the police. Because in 2013-2014, in, uh, the right-wing right -wing led coalition government, which you know, was pushing through the most severe austerity program, also had a, a policy called Senios Zeus, which means uh, hospitable God, uh, which was basically unleashing riot squads to go around migrant areas and beat the crap out of everybody. Um, in which Golden Dawn were, were kind of standing on the sides, you know, kind of applauding. And when the police had gone, they would can finish the job. So that was what the situation I found um, at the time when I when when we well, first of all, let's go through the, the, the chronology. Golden Dawn, its its electoral breakthrough was in the two elections of 2012. Uh, where they where they actually got 21 MPs in the first of those elections on a seven percent vote. Now they did that by by taking I think I think it's 10 percent of the Conservative Party's vote and and 20 percent of the kind of UKIP equivalent vote, the Laos vote. So that's a breakthrough. But almost immediately after that, they started polling 14 percent, and and you know. 14% is not far off the famous 17% of Hitler in, in the you know, March, March 1930 
election. So that's why everybody suddenly got really scared. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there's a couple of things I want to pick out. We'll come back to the police collusion because some of the stuff that came out in the trial is pretty staggering, I think, when it comes to the, the role that some of the police officers involved. But as you say, I mean, 2012 is the big breakthrough and it's a pretty meteoric rise. I mean, the party starts early 1985, remains pretty tiny and pretty irrelevant for quite some time. You know, I, I, is it, you know in, in the 90s, their votes were in the small thousands, you know, 3,000, mm. 4,000. By 2012, we're talking hundreds of thousands, well over 400,000, I think, in, in the, and then the 2014 election, they get over half a million votes, which was, yeah. um, understandably, this, this sent kind of shockwaves across the continent. I guess one of the, the really interesting questions is you, you, through your work, obviously met people from uh, Golden Dawn, but also, I'm sure, met supporters of Golden Dawn. And one of the things I'd be interested in hearing is a little bit about why people said they were supporting the party. I mean, we've talked about uh, the economic crisis, we can put some stats and figures on that in terms of, you know, youth unemployment levels. But what were on the ground were people saying why they wanted to support a party like Golden Dawn, which for, for many people like us of a certain political persuasion uh, might seem like something of an anathema, especially when you think about the Nazis rule in Greece, for example, yeah. okay. the war years. How, how does that happen? What are they telling you when you're speaking? I to mean, you? first of all, we need to realise that uh, Greece was a dictatorship in the 60s and 70s. Um, it was a right-wing military dictatorship, and there'd been a civil war after the Second World War, and there'd been an anti-fascist resistance, but there'd also been collaboration with the fascists, in particular in an area in an area called the Peloponnese. Uh, look it up on a map. Um, okay. It's very remote, very rural, uh, and and for historic reasons, there were the 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 was like there was there were villages basically where when the communist partisans liberated them from the nazis they basically killed a lot of collaborators uh no imagine out of these the, the, in other words a, a, a nazi collaborationist tradition existed um a anti kind of anti-communist you know murderously anti-communist tradition resisted uh, existed and a right-wing military dictatorship had existed quite recently out of these traditions, I argue that's that's basically where the intellectual cadre of Golden Dawn came from. Its strongest electoral support was always in the Peloponnese, in the rural areas. You know, this is something. No, it, it's it's like that doesn't stigmatize people who live there. You know, uh, there's plenty of leftists and liberals and Democrats there. It's just that that's that's it's it's significant that that was the case. Nikos Mikhailoliakos, who is the leader of the Golden Dawn, and as we find um, from the trial documents, had operated a Führer principle, you know, the leadership principle that Hitler insisted on. He was in, a right winger in jail. I, I think he was jailed in the 70s for bombing, you know, some leftist you know, uh, thing. The classic, I mean, for those of us who've been around a long time dealing with these guys, the classic Nazi bomber, you know, sort of. Uh, with a with a with a basement full of uh, Sturmabteilung uniforms and and swastika flags, that's who he was, and apparently he in, in jail he met the former military dictator, Papadopoulos, and was kind of informally anointed as the the leader of the Greek far right. So, um, you know, to, to cut a long story short, they go nowhere for decades. They literally go nowhere for decades. And, you know, the Greek anarchists, 
especially after the Seattle moment where kind of the left, sort of the traditional orthodox left is in decline and autonomism and eco-warriorism and anarchism are kind of cool. The Greek anarchists had a very, very effective way of dealing with Golden Dawn. Um, so much so that in 2005, um, Mikhail Oliakos actually closed it down. He literally closed the party down. He said, that's it, we're, we're finished. We'll operate inside various other right-wing formations. But they basically, in 2007, uh, I think seeing the, the way the, the cookie was going to crumble, they revived themselves and um, they adopted, you know, the, what, what they always been but now i think in a more coherent way it was the classic militia party uh, of mussolini so i.e what i mean here is that you it's not just you go to a golden dawn meeting and then separate to that as with the nazis there's the stormad dialogue and you can join that it far more the golden dawn was the militia uh, it was to be in a golden dawn i never went to a golden dawn meeting but i've been in a golden dawn run um, sports clothing shop, which was come political HQ, come fortress, come arms dump, as it turns out. And uh, everybody involved with it is a fighter. That's what you have to realize. Well, partly because anarchism, as I say, and anti-fascism were so strong that they had to be. So this is your shop. Yes, oh, this is hi. the military part. This, the de facto commander of the Golden Dawn attack squads. So, so policemen might come here to buy these yes, gloves. Yes. The cops come here. Yes, the shop he owns sells the paraphernalia of civil conflict. And civil conflict is what he intends. Even though no one likes this, Greek society is ready to have a fight, a, a new type of civil war. On the one side, there will be let's say nationalists like us and some and Greeks who want our country to be as it used to be and on that side there will be illegal immigrants and anarchists and all, the, all those who have destroyed Athens several times in Greece. When I, when I went in the HQ that uh, with Ilias Panayotoros, who's uh, one of the seven people convicted of the highest crime this, this week, you know, he said to me, this place has been bombed 25 times. So who was, who was drawn to them? A lot of rural people, but also a lot of the urban poor. And I had more experience, to be honest, of the urban poor than the rural. To make my documentary, This is a Coup, we went to a village that had been basically changed hands between the centrist social, centrist social democracy, PASOK, and centrist conservatism, new democracy, since 1945. They call them castles. They're just, they're basically impregnable castles of centrism. And what happened to this one village was, uh, which was near Corinth, um, was that in a single election, the electorate just became split between Syriza and Golden Dawn. And all the other parties were minorities. And the majority, and, and again, you know, I, I'm sorry to keep coming back to it. If you read, say, Daniel Guerin's the Brown Plague, his account of travels through Weimar. I mean, that's what he describes, you know, youth hostels in which there are literally no liberals, just Nazis and communists sitting at each end of the common room, singing songs at each other. That's what a Greek village felt like in 2012, 2013. <laughs> 
And as I say, elect, so that's the membership. You know, everyone's wearing party black, party paraphernalia. It's the meander sign. It is a Greek meander, uh, a Greek, ancient Greek sign. And it does draw on the same symbolism as the swastika does of, of fertility. Um, meander sign is their, their sign. Uh, and their modus operandi is to, to go and attack migrants. That's literally what they do. And um, if you're a young kid and you, you're not leftist and you don't uh, subscribe to anti-racism and feminism and internationalism, which are very strong in Greece, uh, you basically, you joined Golden Dawn. It's, it's really, there's, there's loads in there to unpick. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is this kind of core of the party. And, and when you read a lot of the stuff through the uh, 2010s onwards, you start to see a lot of stuff in the press about Golden Dawn modernizing or becoming less extreme and, uh, you know, its image and ton of like hiding some of its more explicit Nazi elements to it. And of course, we've seen this across the continent of Europe in the last 30 years, this kind of core that remains very extreme and then a periphery that's slightly less so or, look, or certainly looks uh, less extreme. One of the things, uh, questions I've got really is, lots of journalists forever saying the anti-fascist movement called everyone a fascist, called everyone a Nazi. In the case of Golden Dawn, it is completely fair, I think, to argue this is a neo-Nazi party in, mm. in quite an explicit sense. Um, but there's 500,000 people that vote for them. Um, mm. So is it fair to, to make a distinction that says, at its core, this is a neo-Nazi party, a genuinely neo-Nazi party. Um, but there is five, you know, we're not saying there's 500,000 neo-Nazis in Greece. No. no. No, absolutely. I think, you know, to make it more complicated, it's a three, it's a three skinned onion, unfortunately. Um, so the periphery, the outer skin are radicalized, xenophobic nationalist voters who've had enough with 25% unemployment and who as well, remember, Greece it, it, it has a, a strong ethnic identity you know so, sort of and it's one of the oldest cultures in the world um that identity of being hellenic uh and and you know looking hellenic sounding hellenic having hellenic music you know the music in them um, of rebetica uh which is the folk music that associated actually with the radical tradition with band band on the fascism um, is, is Byzantine music. So, th so this is an old nationalism and it is an ethnic nationalism. Now, so it's no surprise that there are ethnic nationalists in Greece. And what happened is they were radicalized by the failure of very racist and very nationalist conservative parties to defend them against the EU's austerity program. So that's the understandable thing. What's happened is that most of them now have gone back to voting for new democracy, um, which is, as you know, trying to turn over migrant boats in the Aegean right now and adopting a very belligerent tone, for example, towards Turkey and over, for example, the you know, topic of the week, Armenia, Armenia, Azerbaijan in fascist land, in fascist, you know, telegram world. That's the new thing. Well, the, the Greek government is very strong on that at the moment. Um, the CADA, of Golden Dawn and the people actively drawn to it, I'd say were um, on a trajectory or towards the most radical of the 
UKIP Front National Lega type model. So you know that there is a there is a there is a radical version of that which continually accepts democracy but speaks as if democracy is about to collapse. But, and it speaks of violence, but doesn't necessarily do violence. You, you know that that's that's kind of. I, I think that's what someone like um, Paniotos, who I interviewed in 2012, was. That was his trajectory. He was a highly articulate man, and and because I've been an anti-fascist my entire life, I was able to have a conversation with him about the premises on which they would take power. And what he said to me was. First of all, we'll come to the violence in a minute, but, but their, their view was violence for them was necessary, but, but um, secondary. For Panayotoros, the idea was uh, that, that they would come to power electorally because Syriza would come to power and fail. And there would be a one-way radicalization and people would say Syriza failed as well. And remember, that's what they did in 2015. You know, uh, Syriza will, Bill and Dawn said, and the, the Orthodox Communist Party also said, Syriza will come to power and it will cave into the European Union. And then after them, it's us. Um, that, was his, that was his project. So that's, that's, the, the, that's the, as you, as what you might call the radical right-wing populist layer. The next layer is the boot boys. And, and I think what for them... When I met them, when I say met them, I met them outside their HQ when they're trying to, um, you know, unceremoniously get rid of me. <laughs> and um, they, for them, just as with squadrism, uh, life was basically a philosophy of violence. And what, what people like Paneotorus, the, what they managed for those few years was to hold it bo both together. Violence, I think it's Nino Valeri, the Italian historian, caused squadrism. Violence elevated to the level of an, of an ethical principle. And um, Paneotras said to me, he said, no, no, no. He said, yes, we're committing. He said to me on camera, we are committing violence. But he said, the reason we do it is because if we didn't do it in an organized way and a symbolic way, I would go to the market and turn over all the stores of migrants only, Greek youth would do it in, in a murderous and chaotic way. Um, now, what's the final skin of the onion is the one nobody knew about, because in public they never used Nazi rhetoric or symbolism. But we now know that in private, they literally had stores of swastikas. They had like mannequin dummies dressed as the Sturmabteilung. They had and, and then they had vintage weapons, you know, the Lugers and the, all that the Volta PPKs, and in private, they would then, Michal Oliakos, this elderly statesman, leader, Führer principe guy, he's recorded saying that he supported the Nazi occupation of Greece and that the Greeks were a weak people and they needed Aryans, you know, I mean, my goodness, you know, they needed Aryans to, to, to make them strong. So I'm sorry it is like such a layer cake, but I think because it's a finished episode, it's important that we, we do get to the absolute truth about it. Um, and yet, so they kept that juggling match going for a while. And it was the murder of Pavlos Fisas, the anti-fascist rapper in 2013 20, uh, that, that ended it. 
Uh, it's a really, really useful and clear way to kind of split it up and think about it. I want to come on to the trial uh, in a second. Uh, just before we do, um, I just wanted to talk very briefly about anti-fascism in Greece and the anti-fascists' actions against Golden Dawn, because I, 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 this trial is obviously of central importance to this in terms of how Golden Dawn has been brought down, but um, I don't want it to just be viewed as though the state took no. down Golden Dawn. No, no, absolutely. A long tradition of anti-fascism in Greece. Um, and of course, the, the fight against Golden Dawn has been the forefront of that, has been communities, local mm. people and anti-fascists. So just before we come on to the trial, uh, could you just say a little bit about some of the stuff you came across in sort of that sort of area? Obviously, anti-fascism in Greece to the traditional form of uh, no platform. Um, and the combination of, of the anarchists, the communists and the radical left were more, and, you know, trade unions as well, and trade unions go on demos with, you know, one inch thick sticks and, and crash helmets. Um, so between them, you know, they were capable of what? The, the fascists could never attack a workers' demonstration. They could, there were areas where, there were no-go areas for the riot police. So, you know, the, the, the idea that the Golden Dawn could get into them were, was, 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 was ludicrous. Um, but the, the problem was, I remember sitting in 2012, 2013, at the depth of the crisis during the anomic period, as we call it, and speaking to very, you know, veteran and politically knowledgeable autonomist anti-fascists. And they said, we've lost areas. We've lost whole areas to Golden Dawn. They know do what we did. Um, the reason this, what, what caused this was the specific intervention of just two riot forces in, 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 in Greece. And one of them is, called Delta, and it's a motorcycle-mounted, very heavily militarized riot force that became a, a, an anti-Antifa. That's basically what it was. And so they would, you know, literally, I, I mean, they would break up any anti-racist demonstration. They would drive in 60 strong motorcycle motorcades with, with two batons drawn and bash anybody on the way. Amid this rising tension, anti-fascists have moved from a graffiti war to action. This motorcycle demonstration was organised on the 30th of September. It led to a clash with Golden Dawn. 15 demonstrators were arrested and 25 more when it came to court and others turned up to support them. So that kind of physical anti-fascism became very defensive after 2012-2013 under the Conservative government uh, and, a, and a very repressive police force. What was happening? I mean, he interviewed two, two people. They'd been arrested, beaten up, and then the cops had allegedly taken their photos on their private cell phones and said, right, these are going straight to Golden Dawn. So, you know, like na you know, naked photos of, of one, one was a woman, you know, that, horrific stuff. So the other part of anti-fascism, however, was the defense of the, the lawyers defending uh, migrants and prosecuting, because in Greece, there's, there's a lot of scope for private prosecutions of things like racist attacks. So the legal system was appalling and is appalling, but the, the legal profession was brilliant. So that was anti-fascism at the height of the, the fascist threat. Um, and I think we have to acknowledge at a time when the Greek government is claiming all the, uh, you know, all the uh, kudos for what's happened. But first of all, there was a lot of 
informal collusion in, in this in this way in 2012 i i, I was at a theater uh which had just been attacked by a fascist mob, led by this guy Panayotos. He was filmed shouting absolutely filthy racial slurs at the director of the theatre, and, and then his supporters then just attacked the police and threw stones over the wall into an open-air open theatre with, with the actors inside, because they were performing a radical play. The, the director of the theatre is on the phone to the Ministry of, like the equivalent of the, of the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and they're going, we can't do anything, you know, we can't, there's nothing we can do. Literally that. In a small Greek theater, the gates are locked. Among the actors, inside, rising panic. The manager is speaking frantically to the Athens chief of police. Outside, supporters of the far-right party, Golden Dawn, throw bricks and punches. Performance of a play called Corpus Christi goes ahead symbolically to just 20 people. Even days later, the play's director is stunned by what's happened. What happened that night? It was uh, it was the, like like the Kristallnacht. I saw one Greek MP, Golden Dawn MP, de-arrest an arrested protester because he used his his own immunity from prosecution, to go into the riot squad's van where this guy was arrested and pull him out. I mean, so, so no, that was under a conservative government. So this, these same conservatives were quite happy to see Golden Dawn running, running, Dawn running around repressing the left. But when Fisas was murdered, I think something clicked. And I, think, I do think there was also pressure from within the European Union. Uh, and indeed from the Obama administration, because what was, you, you know, you, mainstream politics is full of lawyers and, and they were looking at Greece and saying, look, the rule of law is evaporating. Um, and and I, was, I was worried about the rule of law at this time. And when you got anarchists saying, you know, shit, the rule of law is evaporating, that's a, that's, that's a, a big signal. So, so the Fisas murder triggered the crackdown. And the only question then was, would the legal system do its stuff? And I mean, the, the, the delays it's taken, the fact that the prosecutor himself proposed that they, would, that they were acquitted on the organized crime charges tells you how much the, the left and the liberal progressive civil society and legal campaigns have had to do to get us to this moment. That's why when we say it's good news, that's the good news that it is. It's not good news. It's not simply because a kind of bunch of racist conservatives have had a change of heart. It's the fact that from below, I think the legal campaign to prosecute them involving Fisas's mother, his relatives, the relatives of uh, some migrant uh, fishermen who were attacked, um, was what created the legal case. I still don't know what the I can't read Greece. I haven't read a ruling. I don't. I can't read Greek. I haven't read a ruling. I don't know how the judges, three judges, came to their conclusion. But to be honest, the evidence was pretty stunning, and a lot of the evidence was dug up by left-wing journalists during the process of the trial. So the so the document detailing Mikhail Oliakos's commitment to the Führer principle is important because it means that if a Golden Dawn member, as is clear, premeditatedly killed Fisas, then there is 
just as in the Sturm 33 trial in uh, in Germany, uh, Hans Litten's famous trial when he calls Hitler to the um, to the uh, podium, then there is a case to be made that under the Führer principle, then then the Führer is politically culpable for that murder, and I think that is what the the um, the lawyers in court actually established. It's a, it's a really beautiful case study in terms of anti-fascism and, and the broadness of what anti-fascism can entail. Um, quite often it gets reduced to, you know, it's going to be a person in the balaclava having a fight. And, and in Greece, obviously, there was those battles for the streets that, that were really important. But as you say, there is such a broad array of anti-fascism going on there, ranging to bolstering an entire judicial system in some sense or forcing yeah. through this sort of stuff. Uh, and that brings us on to, I guess, the trial. I mean, uh, you know, 68 people were charged. It went on for ages. I remember speaking to some anti-fascists in Greece in the early days of the trial, and it was not, not a joke as such, but it was like, you know, Golden Dawn weren't turning up. You know, this was, it was looking like it was extremely unlikely. But it's transpired now that the defendants, which included pretty much the entire leadership of Golden Dawn, all of its former MPs, and they were charged with all sorts of crimes, from racketeering, attempted murder, you know, weapons possession, some people full murder, and then this idea that it is a kind of criminal enterprise. Um, I think lots of us probably thought that when it first started that the chances were extremely unlikely, but it has, it kind of has come off now and it, we'll have to see. What do you think the impact of this trial will be on Golden Dawn itself? I mean, is this the end of Golden Dawn? The first thing to be said is that in terms of the far right in Greece, there is already a new kid on the block uh, called Greek Solution. Uh, they, caught, they scored 200,000 votes at the last election and they've got 10 MPs. No. They're, a, they're kind of a split off from Golden Dawn, but they're, I would describe them as a kind of, this is the new wave. They, they are far more in the kind of QAnon identitarian, mixture of QAnon identitarianism, Hellenic ethnic ethno-nationalism. Uh, it's a kind of slightly modernized form, and it certainly professes to be, you know, non-violent or you know, not a party militia of the kind that we saw with, with with uh, Chrissy Abgi, Golden Dawn. Golden Dawn itself did score last year, 165,000 votes, 3%. Um, but, I mean, as we speak, the, the sentencing discussion is going on. And, and, I'm, and I just, I'm reading now as we speak, you know, there is a, the pleas for mitigation are, are more or less being a, a flatly uh, rejected uh, by the judges. And I think, Having taken the step, and I'm now kind of, you've got these kind of right-wing conservatives strutting around saying, we're the anti-fascist. Well, good, you know, I mean, I have no problem with that. They're also authoritarians, and one would expect them to throw the book at uh, the leadership. What's important is that the leadership goes down uh, in a way that stops this party functioning. Um, so that's, that's in the balance. I think the, the Greek liberals, migrants, progressives, the left, will be dealing with a mobilised xenophobic ultranationalism uh, for a long time. Uh, above all, because it draws strength from the big, the two big pulsators of energy in the world, which are Trumpism, you know, which of course Trump is not fascism, but Trump is now surrounded by far-right and alt-right elements. And so, so the energy that comes from them is, is, is palpable still in Greece, but, and more importantly, from Russia. Because the one thing that absolutely identifies Greek solution, which is the new kid on the block, is that they are overtly pro-Russia. 
they're very similar in their orientation to Russia. No, remember, Golden Dawn went to, in 2015, the famous um, kind of World Congress of Fascist nutcases that uh, Vladimir Putin allowed. You know, the AFD were there, the Italian fascists were there, Golden Dawn were there. Um, but now we've got far clearer in Greek solution, a kind of Uncle Putin, you know, will is our savior type uh, form of far right. So I think it's too early to say because the, the problem with uh, the Greek polity is it's still quite broken by what happened, you know, in in ten years of austerity, and um, because we're in COVID, I mean, Greece has done very well during the COVID nineteen epidemic, and a very interesting case study it is, in fact, of uh, of competence and of social solidarity. The the world economy hasn't done so well, and so we don't know. The situation with Turkey, both in Cyprus and you know Greece, where 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 only this year and in the last year we've seen the Turkish government using migration flows as a political weapon, simultaneously now with it apparently fueling the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. I, I think the in the Greek sort of ultranationalist world, there's still plenty of grievances. Um, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, so don't write off that milieu at all. Yeah, I think that's that's a really, really important point, maybe kind of to finish on in one sense, in that you can you can make cut the head off Golden Dawn and, and fingers crossed that is the case. And there is a time for especially the anti-fascists and those communities that have this has been a very long struggle for that, you know, to take that moment of celebration. But the half million people that voted for them in 2019 are still there. A lot of the grievances that led to that party's rise are still there. Um and we've seen this time and time again across Europe, you know, the end of the British National Party in 2010, 12 in the UK was not the end of the British far right. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, well, I mean, the end of the Nazis in 45 wasn't the end of fascism. So um, it's a, a kind of moment to, to look back and celebrate on some amazing and brave work. But this struggle is, of course, going to continue in Greece. And let me just say, I mean, the, the verdict plus the recent outlawing of the Nordic resistance movement by the Finnish Supreme Court, uh, which was just a week ago, are two important moments because what they actually say is that you can't have a militia party. You can't have open violence and open anti-Semitic, uh, in, in the case of the NRM, open anti-Semitic harassment of, of Jewish synagogue goers and be legal. Now, I think, I think for us in the anti-fascist movement, it's very important and for those journalists who cover fascism, I, I think it's a moment that we need to build on because I don't want to ban every radical right-wing party. It would be impossible and counterproductive. But a line has been drawn that says you can't have a UKIP-style uh, presence in Parliament and a Nazi-style presence on the streets. Um, and I, I do think, both at present and in the near future, this is a direction that many of these far-right movements are still tempted to go along. Um, they will always try and split the difference between UKIP and patriotic you know, alliance or national action. They will always try and do it. And um, the, the, the liberalism of our own, own legal system is what allows it. Um, and the Greek case is a great example, albeit the left had to force it. The Greek case is an example of bourgeois democracy defending itself, which you know, from a historical point of view, that's what you wanted it to do. Brilliant. I think that's a good place to finish. You've been very kind with your time. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It was a real pleasure. And, and um, 
yeah uh, thanks everyone for listening um and we will see you again next week